0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another in our series of conversations between Caleb Morpin and Tripol And today we're going to be talking about imperialism and war, and specifically, why it is that those two things are inextricably linked why it is that while we have imperialism we also will have war so i'm going to ask first hapal if you could to give us an overview as briefly as you can what is imperialism because a lot of people use the word but they use it interchangeably with the word empire just really to refer to kind of foreign policy but as marxists it has a more specific meaning for us
1: well imperialism in the words of Lenin, who really is the groundbreaker on the on the on the on the subject of imperialism, imperialism can be just summed up in these words: it's monopoly capitalism. There has been con- concentration of production to such a level that every industry is controlled by three, four, or five large uh, individuals and mainly corporate co- co- cooper- corporations, and they control vast Amounts of pr- product, pr- production f- facilities. Along with that, there is the growth of banks, banks which at one time, you know, about 200 years ago, were humble middlemen taking deposits from one set of customers and loaning money to another set of customers and taking a little bit of commission. But in the process, they have grown huge. They become giants of finance and they control not only the financial part of it, but are very often control industries through ownership of shares, interlocking share, share ownership, interlocking di- di- direct directorships. Along with that, you've got the development of monopolies on an international scale through mergers and ac- acquisitions like the ele- electrical industry or the oil industry, where all sorts of different countries contribute to the concentration of production on an international scale. You only have to look at the oil, oil, oil corporations, you know, like Exxon and, 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 the, and the French, French oil com, com, companies, et cetera, and they are and they're, and they're huge. And finally, there is the partitioning of the world. If I can at this stage give you a quotation from Lenin, which says, It's beyond doubt that capitalism's transition to the stage of monopoly capitalism to finance capital is connected with the intensification of the struggle for partitioning of the world. What it means is that by the time imperialism, finance capital, or monopoly capitalism comes on the scene, the world has already been been divided. For example, Hello? Um, Hello?
2: Continue. Continue.
1: For example, uh, at the end of the third quarter of the 19th century, 90% of Africa was unoccupied. Not unoccupied in the sense that there were no African people living there. Of course, they were living there. But it was unoccupied by any of the big or the great powers, as, as, as they were called. Thirty years later, all of Africa had been partitioned. Different countries had taken up different territories. Britain and France, being the most powerful countries, had taken most of it. Little Belgium was given the whole of Congo, but several times the size size of, of, of Belgium, Belgium it, itself. So Germany was given a few colonies in uh, West, 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 Western, Southern Africa, but most of the the stuff was grabbed by Britain and France. So, Germany, by the time of the turn of the century, say uh, the first decade of the of the twentieth century, has become very powerful. Its rate of development had been phenomenal, and as a result, it had spurted far ahead of its competitors principally britain britain and france at that time and germany felt cheated that although she was more powerful than her rivals she had much smaller share of the colonial loot of the of the of the slaves of source of raw materials of avenues for investment of uh, the uh, availability of market it had far less share and it demanded its fair share and under bourgeois justice she was perfectly entitled to say that that the old division was based on the old balance of powers that has now changed and the division of the colonies the division of the avenues for investment etc needed to be brought into consonance with the new balance of forces Now, if Britain and France had agreed to do it peacefully, there would have been no first world war. Or if Germany had said, it's all right, we are late arrivals, we won't ask for more, we are happy with whatever we have got. But that's not the way things are settled in the world of finance capital. So Germany had basically arrived too late at the banqueting, banqueting table when all the seats were taken up, and Germany. Uh, therefore could only get a seat if somebody else would vacate it. And they would not do it voluntarily, so they had to be kicked off their seats. And that's really what led to the First World War. That is the main reason. It's a war for repartitioning. And since, under imperialism, because of the law of uneven development, the balance of forces, the balance of productive uh, capacity, would continue to change, would undergo change. And these under changes have got to be recorded in what each country has by way of its share in looting the, the world. And therefore, it necessitates partitioning, repartitioning again and again on a recurrent scale, unless such time as imperialism is put an end to. That's why the solution to the problem lies in getting rid of imperialism. As long as there is imperialism, there would be war. Of course, there was war before imperialism, but the imperialist wars are on a completely different scale and for completely different reasons. Of course, as long as there is private property in the means of production, distribution and exchange, the source of war is there in germ. But under imperialism, it gets exacerbated and it becomes not war on a local level, but war on a global level. If Germany and France and Britain were fighting in the First World War, that war spread to many corners of the world. It wasn't confined to Germany, Britain, and France.
0: Thank you, Rapal. And um, what really comes out of that for me is, or what I really sort of want to underline from that, I guess, is that imperialism is an economic system. It's not a foreign policy. It's not a decision. That this or that government can or can't take in order to be more or less nice or nasty right and uh that's something i think that a lot of critics of imperialism still can't really get their head around caleb
2: sure yeah that imperialism is not a policy But rather, imperialism is a system. It's a mode of production. It's capitalism in its monopoly stage uh, defined by these characteristics of finance capital, territorial partition, the rule of the world by trusts, cartels and syndicates, an international financial oligarchy. Uh, all of this is laid out very brilliantly by Lenin, and that uh, a lot of people just can't get over this notion that imperialism is something you do. I always say uh, imperialism is not a verb, it is a noun, right? It's it's a, a system. It is not a policy. It's not an action.
0: Absolutely. So where does that leave us when it comes to understanding our enemy and, and trying to fight it? Paul said, you know, the only way to end war is to get rid of imperialism. Um, but what does that mean for the working class in the imperialist countries, Papal.
1: Well, first of all, the working class has to understand. And before the working class, the communists have to understand because the communists in the centres of imperialism leave a lot, lot, lot to be desired. That imperialism, finance capital, seeks domination. It does not seek free, free, freedom. freedom. It seeks domination internally, where few corporations control production in different different areas, and it seeks domination on a, on a, on, a, on a on a world, world, world scale. And, and war, as Lenin pointed out, taking Clausewitz's dictum as his guide, is a continuation of policy by other, i.e., more violent violent means. War is not something that drops from heaven, and for no reason whatsoever. You know, one day the British or the French or the Germans got up and said, I haven't had a war for 20 years, wouldn't that be a good idea? No, they had a war because it was a continuation of the policy that these powers had been pursuing. And the policy on each side was to achieve domination. And domination can only be at the cost of each other. So they had formed obviously alliances with different powers Britain and Germany and Tsarist Russia were on one side. On the other hand, you had uh, uh, Germany with Aust- Aust- Austria-, 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 Austria Hungary. So they were pursuing a policy of domination. And that was exactly the policy they were pursuing during the war. And their aims were exactly the same as they had been in peaceful times, i.e., to achieve domination. And the, once the war ended, the, the same policy would be pursued by these powers at peace negotiations with the only difference that the defeated powers would obviously be un, undone and, 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 the, and, the, and the results of the war would be registered in the treaties they sign at the end of the war. As for example, the Versailles Treaty after the First World War, when Germany, defeated in the First World War, was treated extremely harshly. So harshly that it laid the foundations for the rise of fascism in in Germany and for prepared the ground for the for the for the second 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 world world war so
0: Hello.
2: sure I mean the imperialists have been carving up the world among themselves uh, that led to the horrendous conflicts uh, that we've seen uh, in the twentieth century um, can't disagree with anything that was said. <laughs>
0: We're all in full agreement. We could just go home. Um, I think that we have to talk, don't we, about the fact that the term imperialism has now become contested territory. Um, So Lenin, having done this fantastic job for us of defining exactly what is imperialism, what does it mean, how it's the monopoly phase of capitalism, that that the original Um, capitalist countries had gone global in their attempts to um, escape their crises by getting bigger and bigger markets and conducting uh, uh, production on a bigger and bigger scale. And they're sucking the wealth towards themselves and they're dominating the globe. They're divided up amongst themselves. He described the phenomenon so brilliantly and during the history of the first, during the progress of the First World War, he showed how imperialism was actually uh, not only monopoly capitalism, but capitalism in decay, in its final uh, decaying moribund, decadent, he called it all these things stage. And that capitalism or or imperialism was also the era in which all of the contradictions were sharpening in the system to the point of making, uh, preparing the ground for socialist revolution and of course the bolsheviks were able to act on this and have their socialist revolution during the first world war other other communist parties were not as clear-sighted didn't understand the opportunities and the necessary strategy and tactics in order to make use of the crisis to turn it into revolution but the soviet union nevertheless came out of World War I. And the beginning of the era of socialism came out of World War One, And I think that relationship is something that many people don't understand, but the bourgeoisie internationally have understood it to the extent that they realize that socialism and, and, the, and their own crisis is, is threatening their the stability of their rule and their system. And, and they definitely target our movement. And one of the ways they do it, is that they take our terminology from us and subvert it. And we now have a whole literature where imperialism has become a term, like a swear word, that bourgeois academics and politicians use against any country that stands up to them, particularly if it's a big country. And a whole load of uh, uh, of uh, literature now exists to say that Russia, China, even India, South Africa, you know, um, uh, uh, um, Brazil, Argentina, you know, that any country whose economy is growing or that has a certain size is necessarily an imperialist country and all kinds of justifications are, are used to to push these, this idea So Hupal, do you want to to talk a bit about this, where it comes from and what it signifies?
1: Well, I think one of the things to understand is that one of the, the chief characteristics of imperialism is export of capital as opposed to export of commodities. Commodities were traded before imperialism as well. But what happens with the arrival of imperialism is that capital has become so abundant in the imperialist countries As it were, Lenin says, it overflows the national boundaries. It cannot usefully and profitably be employed at home. It's got to be employed abroad. So imperialists export capital and set up production facilities abroad. And they do that because in these countries to which capital is exported, labor is cheap, labor rights don't always uh, exist Trade unions are not very very strong. La- 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 land is is cheap, and every other facility is made available to the imperialist corporations, and they produce there, and of course make a lot of money. That's the whole point of being in bi- in business. That's the whole point of of being involved in this 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 uh, s- system system of production. So it's ex- export of capital, and. Because they export capital, they're able to make and repatriate a large large amount of profits that they make from the exploitation, not only of their own workers in their countries of origin, but also in the countries to which cap, cap, capital is exported. It has certain effects on the working class movement that will come to. And, and that is, out of these huge profits they make, a certain portion can be and is set aside for bribing the upper layers of the working class in the imperialist countries to buy social peace. And these people become really uh, opportunists because opportunism, of course, in the terminology of of Leninism is betraying the long-term interests of the working class for the sake of certain temporary or imaginary benefits that, that, that they will gain. And that's why a certain section of the working class at a crucial moment actually goes over to the side of the bourgeoisie. This is precisely what happened during the First World War when, apart from the Bolsheviks and probably one or two other smaller parties, the parties of the working class went over to the bourgeoisie and defended the imperialist war of their own bourgeoisie in the name of defending the fatherland when in fact they should have been fighting against their own bourgeoisie, overthrowing it, and bringing socialism. The world would be a completely different place if that had taken place. And even today in the imperialist countries, these bribed sections of the working class are the ones that control, for, for lack of a better word, the so-called left parties, like Labour, Labour Party in Britain, or the Democratic Party in America. They control it. These are the people in whose interests and in the interests of imperialism, the whole system is, is run. They defend imperialist looting, because without imperialist looting, they will not get the fringe benefits that they get from the uh, being allowed a few crumbs of the imperial imperialist table. For them to defend one is the only means of defending the other, one being imperialism. And the other being their own narrow in, in, in interest. And that th- th- that is precisely what happens.
0: You've done a really uh, painted a really good picture there, Hapal, of something that's so important for people to understand about imperialism since it's an economic system, it, but it's an economic system which consists mainly in a machinery of industrially looting the world. And you know, so the labor and the resources, all the wealth of uh, the the continents outside of the imperialist countries is the the labour that produces wealth and the natural resources all the profit from all of that work and you know whether it's whatever it might be is sucked back people work just to stay alive at a very bare subsistence level and everything they produce gets sucked into the centres of imperialism. And the more that the imperialists do that, the more they're able to do that because the weight of their capital has this kind of a gravity, a tra- attractional force to be able to keep investing and reinvesting itself to make more money. And this is a very sophisticated, um, very strong machinery of looting. And as you uh, also emphasised, it has created, an impact in the the imperialist countries themselves on the working class, because our rulers have been able to give us little bribes, and to some of us, quite big bribes, um, some privileges that are reliant on the continuation of this system, and which create a loyalty In the leadership of the working class movement itself. And it's the secret of our inability to organize ourselves for revolution, is the fact that our leaders are so consistently bought off in hundreds of little ways. And we see it, you know, in Britain, and I'll come to Caleb in a minute to hear more about America, but you know, in Britain, we have seen consistently for the last hundred years our our movements um whether they are for better paying conditions or, or 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 towards you know or for peace or whatever it might against austerity um constantly betrayed and misled and um you know from the 1926 general strike uh, through to the 1984 85 miners strike to the strike movement we're seeing right now consistently what we've seen is that the trade unions uh ally themselves to the Labour Party, which allies itself to the ruling class of the country. And in each of these big fights, the union leaderships, hand in hand with the Labour Party, sell out the struggle of the workers to defend their pay and conditions and make social gains in order to um, keep the system of exploitation going. So we have this relationship between the system of imperialism, the fact that our rulers are imperialist rulers, and our own inability to organize effectively in our class interests. Caleb.
2: Well, this whole question of the, the aristocracy of labor, the section of the working class that gets some crumbs from imperialism and has bought off, and thus you know its loyalty becomes to the imperialists rather than to the global working class. Uh, it's very relevant in everything that's going on in the United States right now, globally, um, and and it's it's what's interesting is you know Lennon was writing about this and he describes you know the the methods you know through which these bribes are delivered right he talks about you know jobs uh, on the staff of quote unquote respectable newspapers uh, he talks about seats in parliament uh, and you know government commissions and what's interesting is you can see that you know this kind of mechanism for you know making one section of the working class, more loyal to the imperialists, has really—it's evolved and adapted over time. You know, after the Second World War in the United States, you had—you know—the post-World War II economic expansion. And living standards in the United States were rising very rapidly, and uh, that's the period where the white industrial working class was really flourishing. Right, you had auto workers, steel workers, uh, you know, meat packers, others who you know were working in industrial jobs, uh, but they got you know a house and a car, and that's the you know the American dream, the white picket fence. Uh, and that was, to some degree or other, a way of buying their loyalty to empire, and they supported, you know, the United States. They they supported the crushing of the Communist Party and McCarthyism, et cetera. Um, but now, in the period we're living in, we're seeing all of that being broken down. Right, the living standards. I mean, the, the the industrial middle class of the United States is long forgotten. I mean, just just forget about it. I mean, Detroit is completely completely. You know, all the houses are foreclosed. It's it's completely shut down. But what we're seeing now is that they have a similar method, I would argue, of trying to maintain control. Uh, and trying to, you know, buy the loyalty of some who would be otherwise revolutionary minded. Um, and it's not it's not available, I would say, to the, the bulk of the, the broad masses of, of sections of the working class like it once was. Um, but it's rather it's it's among sections of the population that might be dissident or whatever. And it comes in the forms of the, of the NGO apparatus. You know, there is a huge apparatus that has been created of foundations that seem like they concern about racism or they're concerned about workers' rights. So they're concerned about this or that where young people that might have leftist or revolutionary ideas can get hired and they can get a full time job. Uh, and, and it's, it's all funded by the ultra rich of the ruling class, by the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the DuPont's, the Ford foundation. Um, but in order to work at one of these places, uh, you can't be a revolutionary. Um, and that, uh, a lot of younger people are kind of, uh, hired into working for this NGO apparatus, uh, as a way of buying their, their pol- making them pro-imperialist. And, you know, I mean, for example, in the United States, there's a, a supposedly Marxist organization called the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. Um, and their whole strategy is to get their members in hired at these NGOs, at these pro-worker or these anti-racist or progressive foundations and get them, you know, getting salaries, you know, paid by these foundations. And somehow they're going to maneuver within it, right? They're going to, you know, operate and use Mao's methods to, to to maneuver within it but what it really leads to is they join these these foundations and then that leads to them having to change their politics in order to fit in and and more and and more and more and more they shed their revolutionary understanding and they they become loyal foot soldiers of the Democratic Party and that uh, that this NGO apparatus, um, you know, when Lenin talks about the respectable jobs at newspapers or or seats in parliament, he's describing a similar process where people that that staff what should be working class or revolutionary organizations, they get something handed to them by the imperialists. They get a, a decent job or they get they get some opportunities or, or whatever. And that leads one way or another to buying their loyalty to the system.
0: It's a brilliant um, exposition you've given us, Caleb, of something that I, I have called the NGOization of the left. You know, this turning of revolutionaries into bureaucrats and um, functionaries of actually of the system that they're supposed to be opposing, right? And they become oppositionists within the system rather than real opponents of the system. Uh, and it's a, it's a, there's, it's as you said, the tentacles of this machinery are huge, and I feel like you know, it's something we recognised some time ago. Uh, in the oppressed countries, how NGOs would go to Africa, you know, or Latin America, and they go to communities that are really, you know, impoverished and and suffering greatly from the effects that imperialism, you know, leaves in their countries. Uh, And they would come along, and they would find the kind of natural leaders in a community, and give them jobs. And then they would become, instead of the leaders of their own country's revolutionary movement against the oppression that leaves them you know so uh, poor and underdeveloped they would become the official dollars out professional dollars out of imperialist charity to the right the right ones amongst their population and it's a, it is actually a similar situation of what what you're describing, how what happens in our trade unions, in all kinds of supposedly anti-capitalist or anti-racist or whatever organisations. You know, these are all ways that the imperialists have devised to keep the mass of the population divided and to make to to decapitate the kind of leadership that should be rising up to 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 uh, direct the struggle and the anger of the oppressed peoples, and also to um, keep, as you say, a section, or as Lenin pointed out, again and again and again, a section which is bribed into loyalty to the system and becomes its 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 functionaries within the working class, within the working classes movement. Um, Hapal, I don't know if you want to say something something more on that.
1: Well, i just really like to say is that it's not uh, at all strange that even in the communist movement in the imperialist countries, the thesis of Lenin as to the effect of imperialism on the working class movement is not accepted. It's ignored respectfully or contemptuously dismissed because most of these movements are based on the privileged sections of the working class whose interests uh, they they defend and they get sucked into that position, into that system. They don't want to lose their members because the moment you start saying, this is the effect imperialism has, um, you are basically giving them the uncomfortable truth and they might might leave you. So, In order to keep them or to keep your subscriptions or money they donate flowing to you, you keep quiet. And basically what you are doing is you're collaborating with the selling out of the movement to imperialism, all in the name of uh, uh, making your organization stronger, larger, and, 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 and being blessed with resources for continuing its work. As regards what the NGOs do in third world countries, I just want to give you one example. In India, one of the horrible aspects of Indian life is the caste system. It's been there for millennia, and it is there that where people are, from birth, assigned a certain caste you are either from a higher class or you are from a lower, lower class. Now, of course, these people struggle against that injustice, which is quite right and proper. What the NGOs do, uh, NGOs do is go and find the natural leaders of these communities, and they make them obsessed with fighting just the caste system. Instead of saying that the caste system could only be eliminated by doing away with the feudal survivals in Indian society, and by marching for, forward towards a democratic re- revolution. Instead of bringing solidarity among people from castes, and there are poor people among higher castes as well. Not every Brahmin is, 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 is rich. Not every Brahmin is an Andani or Ambani or Tata. No, they're not. Instead of bringing unity, they just fight, make people fight against each other on the basis of, 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 of caste. Capitalism, to a certain extent, does away with these caste distinctions, because when you're working in a factory next to a person who is from a different caste, it doesn't really matter. Even if you have a thinking which is backward, your struggles together bring bring you together. It's exactly the same in the United States. It's no point constantly trying to divide blacks and whites. More important it is to bring them together to overthrow the system that has been responsible for slavery and after that, the discrimination that is practiced, even despite the victory in the Civil War of the progressive side, the the discrimination against Black people continued and it doesn't begin to be reduced until the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. So it's very important not to get obsessed with these distinctions. But the purpose of the struggle should be, while fighting against that kind of discrimination, to bring people together, to bring working, working people together. Now, war is a continuation of policy. The policy that is pursued by the parties waging war is the party they will be pursuing during the war to achieve those aims, because they've been unable to achieve these means, these aims by so-called peaceful methods. So they're trying to use not peaceful methods in order to achieve their purposes. And at the end of the war, it will be clear which side has won, and this will be registered in a peace treaty of, 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 of some kind. Imperialists, of course, do not wage war by saying, we are imperialists and we want our proper share, or we want to keep the share that we've got. And the old rich imperialists, what Lenin called the 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 fatter imperialists who have been gorging at the imperialist table for much longer than others do not want to give up. They say, by law, it's ours. Yes, by bourgeois law, it's ours. But the new ones challenge. And they say, in the name of justice, we want our, our share. And it can only be settled by war. But imperialists wage these wars in the name of democracy, in the name of freedom, in the name of rule of law and any number of uh, other excuses and that is quite right and proper i just like to give you a very small quotation from blokcano Pl- he says marx said very truly that the greater the development of antagonism between the growing force of production and the extant social order the more does the ideology of the ruling class become permeated with hypocrisy. In addition, the more effectively life unveils the mendacious character of this ideology, the more does the language used by the dominant class become more sublime and virtuous.
0: That leads me perfectly on, if you would, if you would let me, Harupal, intervene there, because it, it it leads perfectly to something I wanted to bring up, which is the way that the imperialists today, in their assault on Russia, they are claiming to be opposing evil Russian imperialism. Putin has an evil empire, they say. We he's oppressing all the peoples uh, who are living inside the territory of Russia. We must decolonize Russia. That's one of the claims they make. Now, of course, you know, Plakanov pointed it out, Marx, Lenin, they've all at various times pointed out, of course, you know, it's the it's the bourgeoisie's job to try to confuse us while it carries out its nefarious aims. What is um shocking and criminal to my mind is to see how many parties, supposedly of the Leninist tradition, are actually repeating this propaganda about Russia um, and about China and many other countries, and using exactly the same type of phrases and terminology as the imperialists are using to describe those countries which are getting in their way. Papal.
1: absolutely, Jyoti. I mean, this 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 brings me. I, I had I had half an hour free, so I got some two or three choices of quotations from brilliant people, and uh, this is a little quotation from a- a- Engels. He says a bourgeoisie turns everything into a commodity, hence also the writing of history. It is part of its being, of its condition of existence to falsify all goods. It falsified the writing of history. And the best paid historiography is that which is best falsified for the purposes of the bourgeoisie. Uh, Can I I just finish? So what we we get these days is that Everything is falsified, as Jyoti said, because they're not opposed to the word imperialism as long as it is applied to their op- opponents. Russia has to be de-imperialized, which is really a code word for saying Russia has to be broken up into small digestible pieces so that the imperialists can go and lord it over uh, the country and they can loot it. And, subjected to rampant looting and exploitation. That's the meaning of it. So, you have to decode the words that imperialists and their ideologues, the intellectuals and historians and social scientists use. they got armies of people. You and I struggle to get one or two people who will help us, but imperialists have armies of people. The imperialist prophets allow them to be able to hire these people and they are mindless people. Some of them deliberately, they know they're telling lies, but it's, it's good, good money. As Engels says, the best paid historiography is the one which is best falsified for the purpose of the bourgeoisie. So I give you two a tip if you haven't already got it. You want to make money? Falsify history. Start making statements in favor of NATO and US imperialism or British imperialism, and overnight you'll be on every main, main channel. And what's more, your appearance wouldn't be free, a check will come before you have reached home from the studio, and your books will be advertised, you'll be shown to be one of the greatest intellectuals who's come up with some
2: fantastic stuff,
1: which is stale old uh, stuff in the service of imperialism.
2: Taylor. Well, what's interesting is that you know, things have changed a lot over the course of my short life. I mean, I'm only 35 years old, but I remember there was a time where it was only leftists. We were the ones saying, well, the USA was a society founded on slavery, founded on the genocide of the native peoples. And, uh, you know, this is a society rooted in imperialism. This is an imperialist country. Uh, And then with that analysis, we would say things like the US invasion of Iraq was completely wrong and unjustified. Iraqis had the right to resist the, the US occupation. What we've seen in the last couple of years, uh, and I think this is particularly interesting, is that there seems to be now a, a very widespread, especially among the liberals, acknowledgement of the big picture. They'll say, yes, the USA was founded on slavery. Yes, the USA was founded on the slaughter of the indigenous people. But then that they take that big picture narrative and they find a way to redirect that to be absolutely wrong on every issue that is currently facing us whether it's russia whether it's you know china where you know they they they, they kind of turn it around um and it, it's very bizarre to to watch um meanwhile uh they then equate uh, any defense of Russia and China with you know the new right. We have the rise of the new right in Europe and the United States with the Trump and the MAGA movement, Make America Great Again. In, in Britain, you've got Brexit. And in, in France, you've got Le Pen. And, and that that seems to be what the main forces of imperialism are more afraid of right now is this kind of you know this this right-wing insurgency by some levels of of the capitalist class i mean it's not a working class movement by any means this is a section of the capitalist class of their own countries that for whatever reason wants to operate in a way that is not in the overall interest of the imperialist system um and they've kind of utilized people of left-wing persuasion Uh, to be their foot soldiers in fighting the new right. And they've then equated genuine anti-imperialism with the new right. Um, you know, if you question what the mainstream media says, well you're spreading conspiracy theories and that's just like what Trump says. If you if you, you know, if you if you are, you know, you know defending Russia, well you must be a right-winger because, you know, you know Russia is a right-wing country and it is it is Trump who likes Russia, so therefore you must be and and they've created this kind of bizarre equivalency where where, in the name of kind of this this, and the other thing that they've done, I will add, is that that they have kind of taken this understanding of imperialism and this understanding that uh, you know that that sections of the working class in the United states have have been bought off or whatever. And they've they, rather than than looking into the actual mechanics of how things work in our time, they've blatantly racialized it. Uh, they've said, "Well, you know, white people benefit from imperialism, so therefore, anyone who is fighting for the interests of white workers is therefore pro-imperialist, right?" And they've made this a blatantly racial thing where it's like, "What we need to do in the United States as leftists is just come together and talk about how." How white people have had it too good, uh, you know, and why why they need to acknowledge that, which I mean, it's not that there isn't any truth in that. Right. I mean, it has been the white working class historically uh, that have been, you know, the biggest supporters of wars, etc. But they want to have a racial conversation uh, rather than a conversation about what the imperialists are doing right now, what countries they're targeting um and who is opposing it etc and it's it's this weird kind of turnaround where uh especially since the pandemic with the woke uh the woke you know uh, i don't know what you want to call it the woke turnaround of imperialism all of a sudden you know we're supposed to support joe biden in attacking russia and we're supposed to support joe biden in cracking down on donald trump uh and if you oppose it then then you're a racist and a white supremacist uh i mean this is this is the way they've kind of turned around the rhetoric and it's very confusing and a lot of leftists just because they have have this gut level opposition to things like racism things like you know chauvinism of any kind they fall for it but what they don't see is that they're becoming useful soldiers of imperialism in fighting Russia and China and Venezuela and Iran and all the countries that are breaking out of imperialism. And just because imperialism is now using progressive phrases and just because there's a lower section of the work, uh, of the capitalist class that, that for whatever reason is opposing it with its own demagogy, that doesn't change the nature of what's going on. We still have the imperialist system trying to beat back countries that have broken free from it.
0: Thanks, Kayla. Before I pass to Hapala, a couple of observations from what you were saying. You were talking about how you know it seems like there's been a shift in what the imperialists in their narrative are prepared to recognise. I mean, this is something we've seen happening with imperialism on the back foot, actually ever since 1917. Um, but in particular, I think in the as the recent crisis has become deeper, it's really it's actually a sign that imperialism is on the back foot. There's increasing numbers of people who are no longer satisfied, right? Because their conditions are worsening. The, con- the Keynesian consensus from the end from World War II has come to an end. And the lower section of the working class is sinking back to the levels towards the levels it, it used to be in before world war ii before it got the hefty bribe that came to everybody and not just to the labor aristocracy and in that condition there's a lot of anger a lot of unrest a lot of turmoil and a lot of recognition that this system is wrong and it doesn't work right and i think what we're looking at is new means to uh divide and rule uh as the, the peaceful means of just bribing everybody is not available to the imperialists, right? Their crisis, their economic crisis, means they're no longer able to bribe the whole population. They're going back to bribing just a section of the population. And then, how do you keep everybody down in that situation? You have to come up with all these culture wars, you know, the where you put people black against white, and you know, uh, you know, people who who loved trans people versus people who hate them and it's it's this you know you you take all nuance out of every conversation and you polarize people around all kinds of issues and it seems to me they try to do that with the issue of of race they take it out of all of its context of the real context which is it's a tool of the imperialist system right and that imperialism is the thing that has to be attacked if you want to attack racism and they turn it into black people versus white people Mm -hmm. apart
1: no, I, 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 absolutely, um, what, is, what is happening, is I think there are two things that we really need to stress in the working class movement. One is the effect of opportunism in the working class movement, precisely for that reason, no matter how difficult it is, in the words of Lenin, we must go deeper and lower among the working class and get hold of people who are excluded from, from, from this uh, gravy train people who don't get the benefits that the board of sections of the, of the, of the working class get. It's important for us to mobilize those people. They're more difficult to organize, but it's worthwhile organizing them because socialism, once they understand, means much more to them. It resonates with their everyday, everyday existence and with their life. That's one thing that we, we need, need, need to do. Secondly, what we need to do is that war is a continuation of policy the substance of imperialist policy is domination. It's not freedom. While they speak of the freedom of their people and they treat their people with total contempt, as we have pointed out several times on this channel as well, that while there were 2 million people demonstrating against the then impending Iraq war, British planes were flying over the heads of these demonstrators, going on bombing missions against Iraq, which had done nothing against Britain or the United States. And we've got to uh, somehow explain to people, what is the point of two million of you coming out if nobody listens to you? You got to find a way whereby you would, be, you would be listened to. And the only way to do it is to organize, to get organized, not just in trade unions, which have limited politics. I'm not saying people shouldn't be in trade unions, they, they should, and carry our policy there as well. But it's important in each country to build strong communist parties with discipline who can actually, over a period of time, teach the working class what imperialism is about. Thirdly, what imperialism does not let you know is the distinction between just and unjust wars. We communists are not opposed to war as such. We're only opposed to unjust wars. We're opposed to imperialist wars. We're opposed to the wars which are for domination, which are for extending the exploitation of the exploiting classes but there are wars we 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 sport for example the wars for national liberation of the of, of the oppressed people against imperialism and it's the bolsheviks who for the first time have brought the national question and the understanding of the national question in a way it wasn't pre- present Bef- before the bolshevik revolution before the russian revolution when people talked to the national question they talked to a few Civilized countries like ireland the S- serbia po poland etc the hundreds upon hundreds of millions of people in Africa Asia and Latin America who were oppressed by imperialist powers were not part of their 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 their, their, their vision at all people were treated as civilized and uncivilized, black versus white um, educated versus uneducated, of which only the civilized ones were supposed to be the carriers of superior civilization, and they had the right to rule over other people. And the October Revolution put an end to that nonsense and broke down that wall um, between the so-called civilized and the uncivilized, between uh, people in the colonies and people in the imperialist countries. And that is a great contribution. That's precisely why the countries fighting for national liberation naturally gravitated towards the Soviet Union, not just the working class of the imperialist countries, but also the oppressed people, because it was only in Moscow that they got the support that they needed in their struggle against against imperialism. So we support the wars for national liberation. We sport wars against absolutism. There are many places where you know medieval monarchies rule. Middle East is a perfectly good example. If people fighting even for a bourgeois revolution or fighting against uh, these medieval monarchies, we sport, sport sport those wars. And of course, we must I say if wars of socialism against imperialist countries, if socialist countries are engaged in a war against uh, imperialist countries, we support the social, socialist countries. As, for example, the proletarians and oppressed people of the world supported Bolshevik Russia during the Civil War and War of Intervention, or later on during the heroic fight of the Soviet people, during the, uh, the, the, the great patriotic war of the Soviet people against against Nazi Germany. We support, support, support them. And finally, of course, The most important, we support the war of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. You cannot be a socialist and be opposed to war, because that would mean you wouldn't support the war of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. So there are these wars we support, but what we do not support are imperialist wars, and we must be able to distinguish. And that distinction between just and unjust war is sought to being obliterated in the present conflict between Ukraine and Russia, which is not a conflict between Ukraine and Russia. It's a proxy war waged by the neo-Nazi NATO alliance against against Russia. And we must support Russia, instead of saying Russia is also an imperialist country, that this is an inter-imperialist contract, and we wash our hands of both. There are some parties that do it, and we oppose that. And we must expose these parties that are confusing the working class and comparing this war to the first world war. If we were social, social chauvinists, wouldn't we be fighting? Would we not be fighting on behalf of our own bourgeoisie and saying, let's get rid of Russia because Russia is, a, is an imperialist country? On the contrary, we are the only upholders of the rights of the British working people, as you would be in, in the United States of America, because we are against our own bourgeoisie, waging an imperialist war in order to subdue, in order to cut into pieces the great Russian mass and make it easy to, to digest and exploit. So that that these are the messages we must take to the working class movement.
0: Taylor.
2: Yes, I mean, Russia is not an imperialist country. China is not an imperialist country. If you look at the definition of imperialism, uh, these are both countries that were under the domination of the imperialists and broke free. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia was being looted and devastated and then putin came into office and he restructured the economy of russia to be centered around the export of oil and gas uh and you know they rebooted their economy and rebuilt their industrial base on on the basis of exporting and you know subsidizing industry with the proceeds of Gazprom and Rosneft, to state state-run energy corporations. That is not an imperialist economic setup by any means. Um, and if you look at the relationship Russia has with countries in Africa that trade with it, if you look at the relationship Russia has with, with Cuba, with Venezuela, with countries like that, this is not an imperialist relationship. This is not territorial partition of the world. There's not e- extraction of, of wealth and super profits being made. That's just not the reality. And the same can be said for China. If you look at what China's doing with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, and the One Belt, One Road Initiative, this is an imperialism. Are there corporations in China and in Russia that trade with countries around the world? Of course. Um, and are there profits made in, in those in that trade? Absolutely. But the relationship is not an imperialist relationship in the sense these countries are not having their development held back. These countries are not being kept poor by the by the russians and by the chinese and if you look at the relationship the united states or britain or france has with the countries that it trades with versus the relations that that russia and china have with the countries they trade with it doesn't match um and you know i mean and they point to little examples of you know here well this chinese corporation mistreated somebody or here this russian person did this it's like You're 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 not making the case one person doing some bad thing or one instance where some pressure was put on somebody that doesn't that doesn't denote an imperialist relationship. Imperialism is a relationship, it is a system. Russia and China are very clearly not imperialist in any sense of the word. They just are in in the leninist sense of the word at least, right? Uh they're they're not imperialists. And um people who want to call them imperialists, I've noticed that many times the people who make these claims that Russia and China are imperialist, they don't even really feel a need to justify it. They're not pulling from Lenin and all of that. They don't they just they're they're pandering to the bias that people have from consuming mainstream U.S media and they're just trying to gain some kind of credibility they think that if if well it, you know I I can I can criticize the United States but if I as long as I denounce Russia and I just say oh but Russia's bad too or Russia's evil then then people will listen to me no they won't right it doesn't work that way right uh you don't gain any credibility uh by by trying to Echo the imperialists uh you don't you don't you know you don't get more respect um you know I mean uh so I I I would urge people to just stick with the Leninist definition of imperialism and just objectively look at the economies of Russia or China. They're not imperialist by any sense of the, I mean, they're just not, right? Even if even if their interventions militarily were not justified, you would, they would still not be imperialist. Even if uh, there are policies that they've engaged in that are problematic, they're still not imperialist. Imperialism is a system. Russia and China are not part of that system. They've broken out of that system, and that's why they're being targeted.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Caleb. That was beautifully put. Uh, You've reminded me of something I wanted to to bring up, um, which is this distortion of statistics you pointed to, and this cherry picking of, you know, find a tiny fact here and use it to support a big argument. You know, if you read Lenin, what's wonderful about him is he Backs up everything with deep and just like Marx did, deep, broad, wide study, bringing together. So looking at something in its entirety, all the forces that act on it, bring it together. Deep data that make the case, you know, in a whole, in a whole way. Uh, what these people do is pick one statistic and try to pretend it means something in a grand scale, which it doesn't, they've taken it out of context. I'll give you one brilliant example. In a recent uh, article I read, which was trying to say that you know Russia and China are imperialist, it tried to show by size of economy that look, China is now uh, number two economy in the world. What a joke. China has 1.4 billion people. Mm. All you have to do to realize what a trick's being played on you, is to go to a list of countries where the GDP or whatever is put next to per head of the population. (laughs) And then you see what trick is being played on you, right? You can debunk that pretty quickly if you stop and think, but of course not many people do. And you can baffle people with statistics as well as informing people with statistics. And this is a, a, a good trick the imperialists like to play. But if you really look at where are the main stores, the big historically accumulated huge sums of finance capital located? They're still in the same places identified by Lenin hundred years ago. And there's a reason for that. Because capital, you know, what's the job of a capitalist? To take a dump of capital, invest it, make a return. And so, you know, next year it's bigger than it was, right? And then you have a bigger amount to invest, at a profit and bring back and and then you have a bigger amount and then you have a bigger so every time you do that you're sucking wealth towards yourself now you think about historically that process to to, to create those stores of capital they're so distorting in the world's economy you know you can't just come along now and displace mm-hmm. these huge stores of wealth you know by 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 wishing right the only way those powers are going to be displaced is by what happened to Tsarist Russia, which is that they are going to be appropriated. That wealth will have to be appropriated in a revolutionary process and redistributed. If it's allowed to continue its worth of of extracting extracting wealth from the labor of the people of the world, it's going to continue to grow in the places where it is. You know that is it's a historically established fact now, and I, I think people are 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 just really oblivious to to this kind of reality. And um, when we look at the words that they use to to, um, turn us against their own enemies, the imperialists branding Russia and China as imperialists, they are harnessing our instinctive feeling that imperialism is bad to neutralize us. To put us on the sidelines and stop us from taking the side of Russia and China and all the countries who are targeted by the imperialists and recognising we're on the same side. They want to stop us from making common cause because, of course, that is ultimately the way in which our side is going to win and the imperialism is going to finally be defeated. Herpal,
1: um, I'd like to come back to a point which was made uh, uh, earlier. Uh, I think by K K K K level, and that is, there are a lot of things which are correct, which are said by the right wing. For example, the alternative for Germany in the case of uh, the, the 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 Germany, and there are things which are said by Trump and some of the people in regard to America. Although they're a mixed bag, now we must not actually be frightened of associating with, some, with right. something correct that is being being said by, by, by any, any of them, just because they're right-wingers, just because they, they serve the exploiting classes. If there is a contradiction within the ruling class, if there are people who are pointing out what is wrong with the present war in Ukraine. For example, JFK Jr. is doing in the United States of America. I listened to his wonderful uh, in, in, interview with Tucker Carlson the, 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 the other day. If there are people in Germany who who do do not support the war war, war in Ukraine. They are are actually people who are motivated by a desire to see Germany great. Because what they're saying is the present war that is being waged by NATO is not only a war against Russia, it's also aimed at Germany to destroy this big industrial powerhouse of, of Europe. And to prevent it from having a rapprochement and closer relations with, with with Russia, the American bourgeoisie had always opposed the the construction of the Nord Stream. They were unable to prevent Nord Stream One. And now, finding no other way, they have destroyed it physically. It's not done by some peripheral, small six Polish soldiers coming on a. Dinghy and doing it. no, it's a professional job done by the American army and the american American Navy. They've destroyed it so that when the war ends, even if the Germans want to have close energy relationship with Russia and the Russians are willing to have that relationship, it will take years before this pipe can 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 be restored. So the only country that gained from that destruction was the United states in, 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 in imperialism. So when they make or they do not want to support the war in Ukraine. Are we going to start supporting the war in Ukraine just because some right-wingers are saying we shouldn't be supporting this war? I think we should use every opportunity and every contradiction that presents itself to us to be able to advance the cause of the, of the working class, i.e. fight against, against imperialism. I'm afraid when I look around, I find myself increasingly agreeing with the right-wing, not because I'm a right-winger, not because I'm a fascist, it is because the only people, and they are not fascists, they are right-wing. Right. You must make it. You make a distinction between right-wing and, 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 and fascist. They are not fa- fascists. for the moment, there is no need for fascism either in present-day Germany or in the United States or in Britain, because the fascism only comes when the working class is threatening the citadels of capital and is about to storm it, or in the aftermath of a failed revolution. Now, with the working-class movement being so weak in America, in Germany, in Britain, there's no need for fascism. But these right-wingers believe their country is being ripped apart. Why should their country be sacrificed? Why should its industry be destroyed for the benefit of the United States of America? And if they're doing that, we should actually be happy with that. You know, if they're raising the banner of independence for their country, we should be supporting that independence, instead of being frightened that people will say, so you're still supporting bourgeois nationalism. We're not supporting bourgeois nationalism, we're supporting the struggle of, for example, some German people against the attempt to destroy, the, destroy their, their industry, and this can be used for a purpose, and we should not be frightened of associating with it. There is not really a single policy that is being put forward by the so-called left that I agree with. I don't agree with the woke culture. I don't agree with dividing people on the basis of color, on the basis of sex, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sexual pro- pro- proclivity, etc. I do not agree with them. And these scoundrels are always happen to happen, able to support any imperialist war in the name of democracy. They want to get rid of Saddam Hussein because he's a dictator. They want to get rid of Putin because he's a dictator. The real dictators are actually located in Washington, in London, in Paris, in Berlin. They're the dictators we should fight, who present themselves in very, very uh, deceptive and democratic colors. I mean, for example, they'll tell you, they're fighting against Afghanistan. Why? Because Afghanistan was responsible for 9-11. Now, there is very little evidence to support that 9-11 was the work work of of, the Afghan authorities. Majority of the people who were involved in 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. And they came from not poor families, they came from very well-off families. They were people motivated by seeing their country being constantly looted by imperialism and their ruling class being humiliatingly subservient to, to imperialism. Now, whether you agree with me or not, the basic thing is that the imperialism finds any excuse. or they say Afghans don't allow women to be educated. Well, I'm in favor of females being educated to the same level as, as, as males. But that's not something that imperialism gives a damn about. Women were being educated under the progressive regime in Afghanistan. And what did imperialism do? It armed the mujahideen to bomb schools, clinics, hospitals, and schools where girls were present. They were all destroyed, all in the name of fighting against Russian imperialism. So we have got to make sure that we don't fight for deceptive slogans. When we use imperialists, uh, we must use evidence. There's evidence everywhere. The the life itself reveals the hypocrisy of imperialism's assertions, that they have nothing to do with democracy and and, and freedom. They're prepared to tell lies anywhere. American Secretary of State Colin Powell will go and carry some small bottle saying, This is, ladies and gentlemen, what Saddam Hussein has got. It's got some vicious gas which could destroy half the population of Europe within 45 minutes. You know, and they know very well it's not true that Saddam Hussein was buying uranium from Niger, which he wasn't. So I mean, all the facts are there everywhere. And you have bourgeois journalists who paid huge salaries, basically not to write articles and do research, but regurgitate the communiques issued by the defence and foreign ministries of their respective
2: imperialist countries.
0: Thank you, Harpal. Caleb, we're probably going to have to bring to an end today's conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with before we go?
2: No, I think it's a great way to conclude. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah, until next time.
0: Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to
0: bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization
1: with limited resources. And we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.